The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. My name is Mark. I'm one of the elders, and uh, Pastor Brian, our lead pastor, is in the Holy Land uh, this week. In fact, I just got a text from him uh, just a few minutes ago with a picture uh, of him and, and, and Christina, and uh, it said, Good morning from the Mount of Beatitudes, the Sea of Galilee in the distance. So, I don't know, they're probably about seven hours ahead of us, so it's, you know, five in the evening, something like that there, uh, but they're enjoying their time. That's all I've heard from him, and that's <laughs> the way it ought to be. We, we, want, we want him to forget about us for a while, uh, to not get involved. All right, uh, if you would, turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 6, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I want to tell you a little bit about, about me. For most of my life, and, and this would be going back to my, my high school years, I've been involved in one form or another with music or worship pretty much the entire time. So I am a veteran of the worship wars, okay? I've got medals <laughs> to prove it. I've been part of the guitar wars, the chorus versus hymn wars, the organ and piano wars, that was a tough one, uh, the choir versus the praise team wars, the drum wars, that was a biggie, um, the electric guitar wars, the whatever it is that, that Brian was playing today wars. And it's been interesting, to say the least, to be part of just a transition over the last 50 years of how the church approaches worship. And we still discuss, to put a good word to it, uh, these things. We still talk about these things, what's appropriate. And today we want to focus on that. Not so much, not so much on musical style um, or, or genres of music or anything like that, but what is appropriate to express worship to God? Because that's what worship is. We are declaring his, his great worth. And I believe that the Bible gives us quite a bit of instruction on this. Uh, and God has, has told us how he is to be praised, worshipped, adored, and honored. Now, before we get into the text, you, you, may have, you may notice that last week we were in 1 Samuel 24, and uh, this week we're all the way in 2 Samuel 6, so a lot has happened. So we're going to put it up on a slide here, um, just what the story has been so far, like since last week, all right? So we start with uh, David pursues Saul again, and David spares Saul's life again. So then David decides to go to the Philistines, like, well, I'm not getting any respect here. I'll go to our mortal enemies, the Philistines. 
And after a time, the Philistines didn't want him, so they kicked him out. So David is not only not wanted by his own people, he's not even wanted by his, his uh, enemies. Then at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle. So David is anointed king of Judah, which is just one of the tribes of Israel, kind of the southern tribe. And a man named Ishbosheth, there's a name for you if you're thinking of uh, naming a kid. Don't. It means man of shame, okay? And uh, in, in Chronicles, Ishbosheth is called Ishbaal, which is kind of like man of the devil. So it'd be like, well, here's my family. Here's Katie, and here's Samuel, and here's Spawn of Satan, okay? <laughs> You don't want to do that. Um, this kind of uh, division in the kingdom uh, anticipates what's going to happen just a few generations down the line when uh, Israel and Judah are separated. That, that will happen later. But then Ishbosheth is murdered, and people think uh, the people that did that thought they would be commended by David. Instead, he puts them to death because he did not want to. Um, he did not want to murder or assassinate any of Paul's offspring. Ishbosheth was uh, one of Saul's sons. And uh, so he's murdered, and David then is anointed king of all of Israel. Yay, he's finally made king. Then he conquers and captures Jerusalem, and he wants to make that his, his capital. And so this is really about how Jerusalem becomes Jerusalem, how it becomes the city of David. And that's where we pick up today. So uh, we're going to read this chapter in, in chunks today. So I'll read the first section and then we'll pray and we'll dive in. So let's begin in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bailey, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried, hang on, turn two pages, not one. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house 
of Obed-Edom the Gittite. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for this, this day and this passage of Scripture that we can spend some time in. I thank you for what you reveal of yourself in this passage. Now, Lord, I pray that you be with me as I, um, as I seek to explain it. Help me to make my words clear. Help me to, um, to speak the truth rightly. And Lord, give us ears to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this passage ended on kind of a down note, but let's see if we can, we can talk about it a little, a little bit. If you're a note taker, this first part, this first section that we have, will title Confronted by Holiness. Confronted by Holiness. So after David captures the city of Jerusalem, and he wants to make that his capital, he determines to return the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was uh, a central part of the worship of Israel in the tabernacle. It was placed in the Holy of Holies. Um, you can maybe picture what it probably looked like from that documentary film, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, but the Ark represented God's presence. Now, the ark is in the, in the home of Abinadab, where it has been for 20 years. If you go back to the beginning of 1 Samuel, the ark is captured by the Philistines. They think it's a great deal because it's the, it's the most significant piece of artifact that Israel has, and the Philistines capture it. But as it turns out, the ark in their presence causes them to break out in all kinds of sores and tumors and things like that. They put it in the same room as one of their gods, and the god ends up falling on its face. And then they try it again, and the god ends up uh, falling and breaking off its head and its hands, which is a clear sign that God is saying, I'm greater than Dagon. So the, the Philistines put it on an ox cart... And they send it on its way, and providentially, uh, the oxen take it toward Israel, which is they were hoping to see, is it going to go this way or this way? So it goes toward Israel, where it then ends up in the house of Abinadab, and it sits there in his back room, doing nothing but collecting dust for 20 years. Now... When, when um, David determines to bring the ark back, it's because he recognizes how important that is, how important the presence of God. Now, Israel did not think of the ark as God. It was not a God. It was not a, a graven image or anything like that. But it represented uh, the presence of God. Back when it first was constructed and the, the nation of Israel was in the wilderness, Moses would say, um, whenever the, it says in, in Numbers chapter 10, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. 
And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. So to send the ark out was like sending God out. And the presence of God would go with the armies and come back, come back with the armies. One commentator expressed it this way, that the Ark of the Covenant represented God's rule, his reconciliation, and his revelation. So think about that. His rule, it was seen as the footstool of God's throne, an expression of putting his enemies under his feet. In terms of reconciliation, the Ark of the Covenant contained the lid on the top, which was the mercy seat on which once a year the blood of, of atonement was sprinkled to cover for the sins of the people. And as far as uh, revelation is concerned, you may know this, that the, the, uh, the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments were placed inside the Ark. So the ark represents God's presence in terms of his rule, his reconciliation, and his revelation. So now it sits in, in uh, a town called Kiriath-Jerim, or um, uh, our text today called it Bailey, um, whatever it was. <laughs> it's a biblical name, so we all have trouble pronouncing them anyhow. Um, David determines to to bring it out, and to bring it to Jerusalem. In 1 Chronicles, in the, in the parallel passage describing the same scene, uh, David says, Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Now that's very important. There the ark sits, representing the power and presence of God, sits in the back room of somebody's house for 20 years, and it's a real indictment on the reign of Saul and why Saul was rejected as king of, of Israel. Now, as, as we read in verse 3 here, uh, as they determined to, to bring the ark, they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of, of Abinadab, which was on the hill. So they're transporting this ark the same way the Philistines transported it. So perhaps David inquired of Abinadab, well, how did this come to you? Well, it came to me on a brand new cart driven by oxen. Okay, sounds good. That worked. Let's do that. So they made a brand new cart and put it on the cart. Now the problem was... That is not how God uh, prescribed that the ark be transported. So, with all kinds of, of good motivation of returning to true worship of God, they want to bring the ark to Jerusalem, but they do it in the wrong way. In Numbers uh, chapter 4, verse 15, it tells us that when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary. So the tent, the tabernacle, uh, the holy of holies, the holy place, all of that and all the implements were to be uh, packed up and covered 
so that not only could you not touch the ark or any of the other implements, you couldn't even look, up, look upon them. And then as the camp sets out, it continues and says, After that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. That was the instruction for transporting all these, especially the Ark of the Covenant. And David did not do that. Well, God in his patience, in his mercy, allows this to continue. But then finally we come to a point where uh, verse, uh, verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals, they were rejoicing in God. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand so the ark, uh, to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error. And he died there before the ark of God. Uzzah was struck down simply for touching the ark because it was about to fall to the ground. Are you okay with that? If you're like me and if you're like David, you're angered by that. Like, what? What in the world? David, it says he was angered and then he was afraid of God. We read a story like this and we think, that's so unfair. We recoil as if God owes us something. Now you have to know why this is in the Bible and why this is just. We live in a day now where the critics of the Bible many of them whom say they are Christians, trying to recover what they think is, is true Christianity, they have a lot to say about stories like this. I was doing some reading in the past couple of weeks, and, and here's some of the things I hear people say about God and about stories like this. God has to answer for all the injustice. Can you imagine? God is, is accused at various times with various stories in the Bible of toxic mas masculinity, domestic abuse, genocide. He's called an ugly creator, a bloodthirsty deity, a tribal deity fighting for land supremacy. One writer said, this God has a dark side. And the sad thing is, most of those quotations come from Christian writers. So-called Christian writers. I don't know about you, but that just, that just angers me. Because it, it presents to us a wrong view of God. But I get it, because you read a story like this and you, and you think... Well, Uzzah was just trying to keep it from falling to the ground. It was just a, a little minor thing, right? Well, not if you understand the offense 
And not if you understand the holiness of God. One commentator called uh, Uzzah's action a horrific sin of arrogant presumption. The presumption was that his hand was cleaner than the earth on which the ark would have fallen. Now think about it. And R.C. Sproul is the one who initially pointed this out. It's not the earth. It's not the ground that rebelled against God. The earth follows the sovereignty of God. The earth does what God says. It's the human hand and the human heart that has sinned against God. And our sin is far dirtier than the ground itself. And Uzzah thought that if he steadies it, he's protecting the ark And the ark was meant to be kept pure, and his hand was not pure. God established his laws, even these seemingly minor laws like how to transport the ark. um, He established them to, to demonstrate his holiness. If you read through the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, if you can get there in your Bible reading plan and get through them, because we all get bogged down there, right? I would recommend sometime you just listen. Listen to Leviticus, listen to Numbers, and, and find out how many times the Lord says, do this in this certain way, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Again and again and again. In the... Um, book of Exodus, right after God had instituted many of these sacrifices and the tabernacle and so on, we read about the sons of Eli bringing strange fire before the Lord. And the Lord came out of the fire and consumed them. And his words then were instructed, instructive, I will be regarded as holy. Do you think Uzzah's death was unjust? He didn't deserve that. No, I'll tell you what he didn't deserve. He didn't deserve that last breath he took. He didn't deserve the last day that he spent with his family. He didn't deserve the the last year of his crops and his, uh, his family prospering. He didn't deserve... His very life, and neither do we. Anything that we have from the Lord is a gift of grace. So now David asks this question. He's filled with anger, and he's filled with fear. And he says, um, let me find it here. Um, Verse... Eight And David was uh, angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place was called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of God come to me? He's looking at this and saying, it's just not possible. How can I bring this ark to the, to the city that I, that I want to? 
This morning we read in our call to worship from Psalm 24, which raised the question, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? And the part that we didn't read went on to answer that question, um, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. I'm looking around the room and I'm not, even myself, I'm not seeing any pure hands and uh, clean hands and pure hearts. So who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? That's what, that's what David is feeling in that moment. Now what do we mean by God's holiness? Just real briefly, we sometimes think of holiness as being a characteristic related to purity, moral purity as opposed to um, sin and, and filth and, and that sort of thing. And it does have that sense, but that's not its, its foundational sense. The words that we use for holy come from the idea of being cut or separated. So when we say uh, someone is holy or something is holy, it's been separated from other things. For example, you may have fine china in your house. You don't get out the fine china until you have company coming. And it's Christmas Day or Thanksgiving dinner or something like that. And, and the kids are always like, what's this? You know, we never eat on this stuff. Well, that's the fine china. So in a sense, it's kept separate from the other dishes because it's for special occasions. All right, does that make sense? All right. In the same way, God is holy. He is separate. Imagine a wall right here. Okay, we've got a big wall. And on this side is everything that has been created, everything that is not God. And over on this side, we have God. Now, there are some characteristics of God that we can share. When we talk about God being a God of love, we too are commanded to love. But there are some aspects of God that are so other that we will not ever share in that. That's holiness. The fact that God is completely other than us and he, is, he transcends what the theologians call the transcendence of God. He is greater and so different than us that we need to regard him as such. Sometimes we get too familiar with God, and we start to envision God in ways that, that make us feel good, that make us, um, uh, we kind of relate to maybe one aspect of God or another, and, and we kind of make God smaller in the process, because there's a sense in which God is like us, and, and we can be like God um, in terms of some of his attributes, but then there's this whole other thing that he's completely different and above. And we need to, we need to sing that. We need to, I'm so glad we sang holy, holy, holy today because we are, we are proclaiming that God is greater. God is different. God is holy. He's apart. He's separate. That's what holiness is. And my friends, when you see God as holy, 
you will begin to worship him as you ought to. Worship will become much more than what it is. Now, all these laws of God, don't touch this, don't do that, uh, it really makes us, like David, say, well, how can we even come close to God? Because if, if I do the slightest thing wrong, he's going to lash out at me. Those laws are designed to drive us to Jesus Christ. Because we can't keep them. Now, that leads us to the next uh, point here. Point number two, uh, compelled by grace. Compelled by grace. Verse 11 to 13. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. (coughs) And it was told King David... The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. David is now compelled by grace where he once was saying, well, He's in frustration. How can I bring the ark of God to Jerusalem? I can't. So let's just leave it here. Obed-Edom in his house is blessed by the presence of God. Now we don't know the nature of that blessing. Uh, Josephus um, wrote that he he was materially blessed. Went from uh, poverty to great wealth. We don't know that for sure. Uh, The Bible just tells us he was blessed. What that's telling us is God's heart, in his presence, he wants to come and be with us to bless us. That's his heart. And so David is told to, uh, that, that Odom-Edom, Obed-Edom is being blessed, so now that compels David to take up the mission again. David says, okay then I want that in Jerusalem. I want that in my, in my capital city. I think we see here that the home that has God's presence, his rule, his reconciliation, his revelation, is blessed. Now, not to gloss over any problems that, that you may be facing in your marriage, in your family, in your, with your kids, uh, with your job, whatever it is, wouldn't all those things, wouldn't it be better to put God in the center than try to solve them by yourself? Shouldn't the first step be, what does God say? What's God's rule for me in this situation? How would reconciling to God help me reconcile to one another? How would uh, God's revelation of himself and of his law to us, how would that help us? Putting putting God in the center of our, our marriage, our family, 
our life is the, is the path towards solving all those, those other problems. And I don't want to oversimplify what you may be going through, but my friends, you can't do it on your own. You need God at the center. So Obed-Edom is blessed. David sees that. He's reassured. Uh, but this time, he's going to do it according to the law of God. So in the space of those three months that the ark sat in the home of Obed-Edom, and David is, is, becomes convinced now to, to bring the ark after all, somewhere along the way, he either consults with the priesthood or he reads the scriptures for himself and determines we're going to do this the right way. We can transport this ark, but we need to do it according to God's design. In, in 1 Chronicles, in the, in the parallel passage of, of this incident, uh, we read this, Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. David's error of just using the same way that the Philistines transported the ark was a huge error. God had determined that the Levites, and in particular the sons of Kohath, one particular part of the Levites, were to be the ones to carry the ark, and it was to be on uh, poles of acacia wood, and uh, they were to carry the ark between four of them. You've probably seen, seen pictures of this. That was how the ark was to come. And then in verse 13, we read here, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now, this is, this is huge. We have to approach God on the basis of sacrifice. That's the whole point of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. We don't approach God through our own righteousness because we have none. So we have to approach God on the sacrifice of another. In that system, there were various lambs and animals and so on being sacrificed, but it was pointing to Jesus Christ. It was pointing to the sacrifice of Christ. Now think about this. The ark, we said, was God's rule, his reconciliation, and his revelation. One commentator pointed out, and I thought this was pretty profound, that Jesus Christ is said to occupy three offices, prophet, priest, and king. The ark represented all three of those. The prophet, the revelation, the, the tablets in the ark, the priesthood, the, the mercy seat, and the blood sprinkled upon it. And then the king, the ruler, as the footstool of God at, on his throne. All of those point to Jesus Christ, who as our prophet is the perfect revelation of who God is. As our priest paid the sacrifice for us so that we could approach God, we could approach the throne of grace with boldness. And our king, he is our ruler who, who 
is the one who tells us what to do and what, what works by which we may please him. Jesus is the fulfillment of, of the ark, and through sacrifice, they are now able to, to proceed. Now, let's go to the, the third point here, which we will call celebrating with abandon. And in verse 14, we read this. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his home. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to, his, uh, said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is a very interesting story in, in the Bible, and, and it really um, illustrates for us the kind of worship that God desires. So in, on the one hand, we have the holiness of God striking out against Uzzah because they weren't following the proper protocols, but on the other hand, David lets down his hair, so to speak, and dances with abandon before the Lord and celebrates before him to the point where Michael, his wife, um, comes out, comes out of the house to confront him about this. Now David says three things here that I think give us a clue as to why his worship was acceptable to God. First of all, he says, and this is probably the most important thing he says to her, he says, it was before the Lord. David's worship is accepted because he's making much of God. He's honoring God and says, it was before the Lord. Michael confronts him because he, he strips off his, his kingly garments and puts on an ephod. Now, 
Some people say that like he stripped naked or something like that. I, I, I don't see that. I don't see that as being acceptable before God. But the fact is he put on an ephod, which was, which was the garment of a priest, and um, took off his, his uh, kingly garments. In other words, he's not acting like a king. And that's Michael's problem. Do you notice that, that it calls her the daughter of Saul? It doesn't call her his wife, the daughter of Saul. And she doesn't fall too far from the, the tree, so to speak. She is not honoring God the way Saul did not honor God or obey God. It was before the Lord, David says. This, is, this ought to be the governing principle of our worship and our life. And, and, and I will say, say this just as an aside. Worship is not just what we do Sunday. It's what you do, what we all do every day of the week in living our lives before the Lord. It was before the Lord. The, the governing principle of our lives is to, is to make much of God. And that's why, Dave, uh, that's why God accepted David's uh, praise. The second thing he says is, it was before the Lord who chose me. And David is recounting the fact that it was God who chose him to be king over Saul and that it would not be one of Saul's offspring that would keep on the kingly line, but we're, we have a new, uh, a new family line in the kingship. David says, God chose me, and his worship was accepted because his heart was consumed with God's plan. He chose me for this. He chose me to be king instead of your father, because I am, to, I am to shepherd this people, his people, Israel. So he's enthusiastic about that. You know, sometimes enthusiasm for the Lord brings out the worst in churchgoers. Someone gets a little bit excited about God, and we kind of look at, like, what are they doing? Is your heart moved with remembrance of what God has done for you? I do like the way our liturgy flows in this. You may come in, and you may have come in today somewhat discouraged, somewhat down, somewhat um, worrisome, full of anxiety, all kinds of things, but recounting the gospel as we do, coming before God and and. As Matt said this morning, starting with who God is and then confessing our sins, hearing the assurance of pardon, hearing the word of God spoken to us and then um, remembering what Christ has done through the bread and the cup and then celebrating with our, with our songs. All of these things should lift us up over the course so that it may not have solved your problem, but at least you, you, your focus turns to, to God and what is true of us in God. And if God is for us, who can be against us? The third thing that David says here is 
and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. David's worship is accepted because he humbles himself. He says, it was for the Lord, but I'm going to humble myself. Once again, this gets us into that theme that we see throughout David's life of how the, the man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God saw David's heart of humility as he wasn't strutting around as the king. He was abasing himself, humbling himself, and, and even said, these servant girls that you were worried about, they're going to love me even more. And not for him, but because of what he offered to God. Humility, as we come before the Lord, is, is absolutely essential. You cannot humble yourself enough. John Calvin said these words, Alas, who are we? When it comes to magnifying God, must we water it down? Must we maintain our dignity out of fear that we will abase ourselves too much? You can't humble yourself enough. And David's words, I will celebrate, is a decision of the will. He says, I'm, I'm going to do more than that. I will celebrate before the Lord. When you come together and to join with us each Sunday... Is that your mind? Do you come and say, I, you know what? It's been a rotten week, but I'm going to celebrate because I have something to celebrate. It's a choice to be joyful. As we sang, those who, who go weeping will return with songs of joy. That should be our, our heart. And let, let me tell you, looking at David and his, his dancing, and the, world, the word used there is actually twirling. He's, he's twirling around and he's dancing. And he, he's causing people to go, hmm, that's a little bit odd. God is pleased with that. God wants us to be expressive. Yes, we are sour, sorrowful. 2 Corinthians tells us that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There are times to come before God with solemnity, crying out to Him, crying out out of the, the mourning and lament of our heart. But at the end of the day, we have so much to be thankful for, so much to, to rejoice in. The predominant theme of our devotion to God and in our corporate worship ought to be one of joy. And the question I would just have for you as we, as we begin to wrap this up is, do you give your enthusiasm to God as much as you do to the things of this world? I think if... Uh, Think of myself as I go to a football game. I found myself one time jumping up and down. Jumping up and down. And I'm like, what am I doing here? And I, 
well, we just had a pick six, you know, and, and uh, we might actually win this game. We didn't, um, but, uh, you know, I have hobbies. I have things that, that take my interest. And do I have that same enthusiasm for the Lord? I'm going to tell you right now, congregation, you have a lot more freedom here than you're taking advantage of. Okay? You can tap your feet. You can tap two feet, which would qualify as dancing. <laughs> you can clap. You can shout. You can call out. Um, you can actually smile. Some of you, it's like, you're like Ron Swanson, you know, it's like, this is my happy face. You have freedom. Let these truths permeate your heart and your soul. Think about the words that we're thinking. Um, if you came in today weeping and you, you sing a, a, a word like, uh, Though we go out with weeping, we shall return with songs of joy. That ought to give you those tears of joy. So clap, shout, dance, within reason. <laughs> um, let God grip your whole person the way all these other things do. Jesus Christ said that God is spirit and we must worship him in spirit and in truth. For these are the kinds of worshipers the Lord seeks. We worship God in truth. That was the problem in the first part of this, this chapter. They were celebrating and worshiping and carrying the ark, but it was all in, uh, according to error. And eventually God reached out and Uzzah was slain. And I'll tell you what, when anybody dies in a worship service, that pretty much ends the service, <laughs> okay? But then David realizes, okay, there's a way, there's a truth here. And here's how we're going to worship. Here's how we're going to carry. But then in spirit... He dances before the Lord. He dances in humility. He rejoices in God, his, his Savior. I think about when my kids were little or when my, my granddaughters were little, if they came running up, to me, one of the best things um, when I would come home from work was to see my little son come running out and go, Daddy! And he comes running out with arms up like this. Now, can you imagine if I'd stood there and go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Is that appropriate? I think that's a little... No, I, I gather him into my arms. And that's what God is wanting to do for you. So if you're feeling reluctant, if you're feeling um, like, oh, I don't know if I can raise my hand, you know, who's looking at me here, you know, I don't know. Nobody's looking at you. They're looking at Jesus. So... Feel free, express your, your, your uh, rejoicing. It's what the world needs. The world needs to see us having an indomitable 
as John Piper said, an indomitable joy in the midst of our suffering. That's what the, the world needs to see. Now, I've got a few questions for us to consider. We'll go ahead and put these up on the screen. You can write them down or take a picture. Number one, how does my view of God as holy need to change? If you get nothing else from today, get this. Immerse yourself in thoughts of God as holy. That he is great, he is mighty, he's transcendent, he's, he's beyond, he's separate from us. Number two, what impurities and sin remain in my life? We can't look at a story like Uzzah and not think about the, the impurities and the sin in our own lives. But number three, how does knowing that Christ bore my sin change my perspective of, of approaching God in worship? You don't ever want your, your, how you conceive of God to keep you from coming to him because of Christ. And number four, how can I engage and celebrate more his wonderful gifts of grace? Could I play some music? Could I sing? Could I sing out in church? Could I... Smile, um, rejoice, go forth rejoicing. And then as we go, encouraging the, bodyhood, uh, the, the body of Christ, my brothers and my sisters in Christ. Well, we're going to respond with, uh, as we do each week, with communion. Uh, we'll have four uh, pairs come up and, and align themselves here. Uh, communion is our chance to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. And as, the, as you come and receive the elements, as you receive the bread, as you dip into the wine or the juice, as your conscience allows, these people will say to you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. It's not that the elements become the body or blood of Christ, nothing like that. They're just symbols, but <coughs> excuse me, they help us to remember once again what Jesus Christ has done for us. The ultimate reason to rejoice and to, um, uh, to celebrate. Uh, the band's going to come uh, and lead us in a, in a couple more songs to sing, and I, and I heard you all this morning in the first first portion, just singing out. That was so great to hear all these voices lifted in praise to God. I just invite you to, to continue that and continue that spirit of celebration as you go about um, your life. Well, let's pray, and then uh, I'll sit down for a, a minute or so. Uh, use that time to pray, to think, confess your sins, and, and so on. And uh, if you are a Christian, you are invited to the table. You don't have to come, but you are invited. If you're not a Christian, we, we request that you simply stay in your seat. No one will look down on, on you, but the table of the Lord is for the, the, uh, the believers in Christ. So let's pray, and uh, then we'll go to our time of response. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for David, who worshipped you, danced before you, uh, expressed his, his love for you with his whole heart. 
Lord, I pray that you give us that spirit of David, that spirit of humility that doesn't think about what other people think, but only what you think. Help us to make much of you in the rest of this service today and in our lives and moving forward. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.